After the proclamation of God's word this morning, we'll sing together hymn 79. Our text for the service this morning is from Ephesians chapter 2, the verses 1 through 10. Ephesians 2, verse 1. Hear the word of God. And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Beloved brothers and sisters in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, perhaps it struck you, maybe it didn't, Verses 17 through 20 of Ephesians 1 uh, contains one of the greatest prayers of all times. In all the previous verses of that delightful first chapter, Paul has gone on and on about all the glorious realities that are ours in, in Jesus Christ. And there's actually three very long sentences there, and they're just packed full of all the blessings that we have in Jesus Christ. And when Paul is finished with all that, he just prays that God's people might really see and appreciate all of those blessings. Paul lives out of the awareness that it's not enough for the words and the blessings just to be mentioned. The blessings have to penetrate into the hearts and lives of God's people by the power of the Spirit in order that they might be transformed. They need not just information, they need transformation. And that comes by way of prayer, that comes by way of the the Spirit of God, and so it is the prayer of every pastor for his congregation. It's the prayer of every parent for his children. It's the prayer of the people of God. It's a prayer that doctrinal truths might not just be truths that are up there somewhere, but they are truths that are worked deeply into the hearts of God's people. I keep asking, he says, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which He has called you, the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, that we might know Him better. That's what our lives 
are all about. That the eyes of our heart might know the hope, the riches of what we have in Christ. And that kind of thing is what Paul is also going on about in chapter 2. Whereas in chapter 1, he's talking about salvation, if you want, from, from God's point of view, from a wider perspective. In chapter 2, he's, he, he's talking about this from our perspective. He's showing us all those blessings and how one day all those, all things will be subjected to Christ. In chapter 2, he's showing us salvation from our point of view, what we were, what God did for us and what kind of people we ought to be because of what God has done for us. And indeed, here we have three things that we really need to know and to appreciate in order that we might live as thankful, vibrant Christians. The point, you could say, is that you don't become such a person just by having these things enter into your brain through your ears, The point is, just as you don't become a car by parking yourself in a garage for a while, and and just as you don't become fit just by visiting a gym once in a while, so you don't become a Christian just by occupying a pew once in a while either. The truths that are verbalized from the pulpit, the truths that come out of Scripture must actually penetrate through our brains and into our hearts, and they must begin to transform our lives. To the core of our being, in our heart of hearts, we need to appreciate three deep truths. God's Word comes to you under this theme, Paul proclaims, to the people of God, the amazing grace of God. These are the three deep truths we so need. We need to know how deeply we've fallen, how high we've been raised, and how free it actually all is. Brothers and sisters, if you have been privileged like me to grow up in a Reformed church, and if you've heard the Christian truths ever since you were knee-high, then you might think that these things that Paul says in the first verses of chapter 2 don't really apply to you and me. After all, we think we are not the people who really once followed all the cravings and desires of our sinful nature. We are not the people who follow the ways of this world. After all, we're covenant people, and things are better in our communities and in our hearts and lives, we like to believe. Besides taking a superficial look at this chapter, we think he's talking about Gentiles. Those people in Ephesus and surrounding area, they were the Gentiles who have this big, dramatic turnaround in their lives and and need to have that. And the Gentiles are the people out there, but we are the, the covenant people. But think about that for a while. Have we actually forgotten that we are the Gentiles? Somehow we seem to presume that God's covenant line went from Israel over to Netherlands, over to Canada, and that makes us non-Gentiles, Jewish, I suppose. And those folks out there, they are the Gentiles, but we are over here, and we are the covenant people. But if I would actually ask for a show of hands as to how many in this audience are actually Jewish, 
I don't expect there would be too many hands. There's one over there, but I, I think he's not telling us the truth. <laughs> but, uh, and if you're not Jewish by, by race, that means somewhere along the line, your father or your grandfather or your great-grandmother or somewhere along the line was changed and altered by way of conversion and gained admission to God's covenant people but you're still of Gentile origin. It's true, the children of Gentiles become covenant children, but they still are Gentiles. They're still of Gentile origin. The covenant doesn't make you Jewish. We are of Gentile stock, embraced only because Jesus Christ issued the Great Commission, told the disciples to get out there and tell all the nations we are uh, included only because someone broke with their past and saw some radical changes in his or her life. And so a reference to Gentiles does not exclude us at all. But moreover, is it really true that Paul is thinking only of the Gentiles? Notice what he says in verse 3. He includes himself when he says, among whom also we all once can." conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Paul is not providing us a, a portrait of some decadent group of people, or even of the corrupt paganism of his day. Instead, this is the biblical diagnosis of fallen society everywhere. This is the picture of every man, woman, and child without God. It's a summary of the message of Romans 1, 2, and 3, in which he argues that Jew and Gentile are all like this when they are unredeemed. Because you see, if you argue that you are not like this because you are a covenant child, a second or tenth generation Christian, what about Paul? Who was Paul? Was he not a covenant child? Was he not born a Jew, raised in a covenantal home, an umpteenth generation Jew? A covenant context, therefore, is not some kind of bubble in which we are protected from the onslaught of the evil one. Quite to the contrary, think of the Gospels. What is our Lord Jesus doing again and again but bursting that very bubble? He addresses covenant people and talks to them about how the evil one assaults and has captured them. Think of Matthew 12, where he confronts the Jewish leaders with a possibility that it's through the power of the devil that they blaspheme the Spirit when they charge him with casting out demons by the prince of demons. Think of John 8, where it all comes to a head, and Jesus says to the leaders of Israel, these champions of the whole covenant cause, I don't believe you are children of my Father at all, because if you were children of my Father, I would recognize something of my Father in you, but instead I recognize something of your Father, namely the devil. You belong to your Father, the devil, and you want to carry out your Father's desires. Ouch! Israel's greatest theologians, preservers of the truth, children of the devil, they don't belong to God. Throughout the gospel, what is our Lord doing? He's bursting the bubble of covenantal pride 
by which people think they are insulated from the evil one, whereby they think that whereas the devil might be prowling around in the world and he might be walking on socks in other contexts, he's not even a factor to be reckoned with in their own communities. Who was Paul? Paul was one of those Pharisees who finally got the message of our Lord Jesus Christ. He finally saw it. It's a cry that that gets answered after all the gospel passages only through Paul. He finally saw saw it. All of us, Jews and Gentiles, lived among them just like them. Like the rest, we were by nature children of wrath. Actually, it's rather striking that this text gets quoted and footnoted in our form for the baptism of infants. We've heard it a hundred times, a thousand times, but maybe we haven't heard it. It begins, first, we and our children, we and our covenant children are conceived and born in sin and are therefore by nature children of wrath. That's what our children are by nature. That's what we are by nature. That's why the church also prays at the end of that form that that baptized child might valiantly fight against sin, the devil, and his whole dominion. And it is a real fight, and it is a real prayer. Such a child left to him or herself without Christ and the Spirit will never win this battle. Why not? Because left to ourselves without Christ, every child of the covenant, like every child outside the covenant, is not just in need of a bit of help, is not just a little bit sick, slightly flawed. No, he or she is dead. It's like the parable of the prodigal son where the father rejoices that his son is alive again because the truth is when he went to that faraway country, away from the community, away from God and His Word, he was dead. This, my son, was dead and is alive again. This is then the Apostle's assessment of every person without God. Separation from God is equivalent to death. Regardless of whether you're in the covenant or outside of the covenant, separation from God is equivalent to death. We often use the analogy of salvation being an act wherein we save a sinner from drowning, but the biblical analogy is not just talking about a person flailing on the top of the water looking for help and salvation. It's the analogy of a person at the bottom of the lake, unable to flail, unable to shout out, because he or she is dead. It's hard, though, for us to realize that. It's hard for us to realize that because many people who make no profession of Christ, even people who outrightly deny Him, seem very much alive. They might have the vigorous body of an athlete. They might have the great mind of a scholar or the looks and personality of a movie star. Can we say that such people are dead? Yes, says Paul, because in the sphere that really matters, they have no life. And there was a day, says Paul, when I had no life. And when, if it was not for Jesus Christ, I would still have no life. 
if they are blind to the glorious work of our Lord Jesus Christ and deaf to the Holy Spirit without love for God, no longing for fellowship with his people, they are dead, as unresponsive as a corpse. Then it is, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 5 or 6, about the widow who puts no hope in God and only lives for her own pleasure, she is dead even while she lives. And not only that, Paul says that their whole lives are such that even though they are dead, they are actually following the ways of the world and the ruler of the air. He talks about that in verse 2, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. What's behind that? This seems to be behind this. You can read about it in Acts 19. In Acts 19, you hear that the Ephesians, before they were converted through the gospel of Jesus Christ, they were, they were busy with magic and superstition and all kinds of such things because they thought that the demons were in control of their lives and their future. And they talked about the air, and the air is the space between earth and heaven, and all those demons and all those those powers that are at work, they're up there in the, in the air. These unreached peoples are obsessed with things that have to do with demons and spirits and the like. Well, Paul puts it in those terms. He talks about air. And these powers were thought to send dreams and visions and control your fate. And so they resorted to all this magic and all this incantations. And we too are like that. Whenever and for as long as we ever live outside of Christ and His Spirit, we will be subject to every other kind of force in this world. The result, he says in verse 3, is that then we and they are occupied with gratifying the cravings of the sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. This is what happens to those who have this ruler as Lord. Gluttony and laziness and lust and greed and pride and sinful ambition, hostility and, and the like. These are the kind of things we get wrapped up in. Of course, here Paul does not say everything. He says nothing, for instance, about such people being made in the image of God. And he says nothing about differing degrees of depravity. Total depravity, by the way, does not mean that all humans are equally depraved or that every human apart from Christ is as bad as they possibly can be. Total really means all-pervasive, affecting him or her completely. Article 3, chapter 3, 4 of the canons. Therefore, all men, notice not just Gentiles, but all men and all women, all children, are conceived in sin and born as children of wrath, incapable of any saving good, inclined to evil, dead in sins, and slaves of sin, and without the grace of the regenerating Holy Spirit, they neither will nor can return to God, reform their depraved nature, or prepare themselves for its reformation. And here in Ephesians, Paul tells us why it's so impossible for man to do this of himself. Because his sin is so pervasive. 
It has affected his cravings, the NIV says, his desires and his thoughts. This human plight covers the entire person, mind and flesh, thoughts and deeds. It's very, very true that outside of Christ, we are dead. And you can try to, 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 to fool yourself and think, well, I'm a covenant child, therefore I'm alive. Well, as a covenant child, you have a whole lot of responsibilities because you've heard the gospel, and the gospel comes close to you, and the gospel is there again and again in your life. But if you don't listen to this gospel and embrace this gospel and know it to the depth of your being, then you're like that woman, dead though she lives. This is the first deep truth that we must affirm if we really wish to be people of God who are alive to God. Our situation was not just bad, was not just awful, it was impossible. Impossible. But then there comes those true, two great words of Ephesians 2 verse 4 as they occur in the original. But God... Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, these two words in and of themselves, in a sense, contain the whole of the gospel. Man is defeated without any possible recourse but God. The word but speaks about that which was so impossible with man. They couldn't do it. We couldn't do it. But God. It serves to underline how this single solitary means out of this mess that we got into by ourselves is through God and through His merciful, loving, and gracious character. The passage overflows with references to the character of this God who has done this for us because of His great mercy for us. God who is rich in mercy, God raised us up. They come as a cascade of expansive language trying to describe what words can never describe. The full grandeur of God's care and commitment to human beings as it gets expressed in our Lord Jesus Christ. God is not an onlooker in the salvation process. God is not in an angry huff waiting to be appeased. God is the primary actor, the one who by His love deals with His own wrath and shows mercy to His people. And how does He do this? Only by way of His great love and mercy in Christ. God raised us up in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. The idea is that God sees His people entirely in and through Christ, through the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ. When He died, they died. When He rose, they rose. We've heard that often enough, but, but what is unique about this passage is that here Paul even says, when He ascended into the heavens, we ascended in Him into the heavens. That's how real salvation is in Jesus Christ our Lord. And why is it that Paul adds to this idea of us being ascended with the Lord Jesus? Probably because the people of Ephesus were busy with this business of the air and with these demons and with all these forces that were alive and they lived their lives in fear of. Well, then Paul says, your life is secure because you have not only been, you know, rose with Christ, you even are raised up with Him in the heavenly places. 
The space that separates earth from heaven, Paul says, in Christ you are victorious even over that. Your lives are not controlled by the demons. Your lives are controlled by Jesus Christ. In principle, you have ascended above that whole realm. It's not demons and deities. It's Christ. You are safe in Him. When he died, we died. When he rose and ascended, we rose and ascended. The point is not that we physically died with him, nor that we physically rose, nor that we physically ascended. We are still here, still alive, as the Ephesians were. But the idea is that we have undergone a transformation as real as the transformation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you don't get that just by way of information. You don't get that just by hearing words and reading Scripture. The Spirit of God has to turn those words and work them into your heart and life and bring about this process of transformation. The idea is if humanity's plight today is a living spiritual death, The solution is a spiritual living resurrection. Precisely because our problems were so radical and all-pervasive, the solution is a solution no less radical and all-pervasive. It takes the Spirit of God to change us so that we actually want to do that which is good and pleasing to God. And that's a radical change from how we once were, says Paul. Life is not as it seems. You may be here and there may be pain here and there may be difficulties galore in this particular world as broken as it is. The past may have been hurtful for you. The present may be difficult, but the future is glorious because in reality, you have been lifted up into the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. I love the language of the Apostle Paul in chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, where Paul is speaking about the might whereby God does this. He's talking about our Lord Jesus Christ and and how God uses His might. He says in verse 19, What is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe, which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand? The NIV says that power is like the working of His mighty strength which He exerted in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. The picture is of God like some kind of Hercules sort of figure who with all his might reaches into the grave of Jesus Christ, takes him and lifts him and thrusts him into the heavens with all the power at his disposal. Well, says Paul, that's essentially what God has done with us. When he died, we died. When he rose, we rose. When he ascended, we ascended. That is our status in Christ. We're already there, despite the tears and the travail of this present life. We are already in Christ there. God has reached into the abyss of our lives and lifted us beyond death and the grave, beyond the devil and his hosts, and placed us in the heavenlies. 
just as Christ became victorious over death and over the spiritual forces that raged against Him, so believers today are victorious over their spiritual death and over the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the Spirit who is still now at work in the sons of disobedience. And what is amazing about this too is that all of this is placed in the past tense. Paul doesn't say God will raise us, God will cause us to ascend. No, He made us alive, He raised us up with Christ, and He seated us, past tense, in the heavenly realms. Why past tense? Because that's how certain it is for the people of God who have been transformed in Christ. And why does God do all this? Well, that's a good question. When people are generous towards us, we ask, what on earth has motivated them? What's in it for them? Well, again, the the benefit, the purpose is also for us. Here in this life, we have our questions. Why do things happen to our families? Why do things happen to us? Why does a good God allow this? Why does a good God allow that? But there's a day coming when we will see it, says Paul. Verse 7 in order that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Now we might doubt, but then we will have no doubt at all. You have to know that in the Greco-Roman world, such language was usually used of the emperor and those kind of rulers. Goodwill, benevolence, and more such words, you would use those words whenever you were in the presence or talked about the emperor, regardless of whether you meant it. Well, there we will see it. God's grace, kindness, benevolence will make that of the emperor look like nothing. His gracious and awesome character will be evident to all precisely because he took people who descended to such horrible depths through their own foolishness and were in the midst of death and he lifted them to the heights of his love solely through his grace and his grace alone. He rescued those who are in Christ from the domination of the world, from the devil and the flesh, so that He might demonstrate forever the overwhelmingly gracious nature of His wonderful character. And we will have all eternity to stand amazed at that. It's part of how Paul is revealing to us the mystery of God's will and plan. We spend too many days wondering about His justice, but then it will take only a moment for us to see it. And we will spend eternity praising God for it. So that's the second thing you have to realize. Not only how deeply we've fallen, but also how high we've been raised. In principle, in reality, raised into the heavens, regardless of what they're still going to do to us. Regardless of the persecution that will come. Regardless of the disease that will come. This is a fact. We are raised in the heavenly realms because our lives are safe in Jesus Christ our Lord. But there's a third point, just as amazing. And that is how free it all really is. The point here maybe is this. In in over 20 years of catechism instruction, 
I have often been reminded that Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism is not just some doctrine espoused by a man back in the fourth century. It's also basic to human nature. Invariably, when the discussion in catechism class comes around to how salvation works, then young people will make references to how they have to be good and how they have to live a Christian life. And that's, of course, true. What minister, what, what parent wants to say, no, you don't have to be good. No, you have to be good. Of course you have to be good. But what they and we are slow to realize is that this salvation is not dependent on our goodness. Our obedience is not a primary requirement. Even our act of faith is not the first thing. How can this be? In Paul's understanding, we are dead. We are unable to respond in faith. We are unable to do anything unless God rescues us, and He has to rescue us even for, before we ever even believe. How can we possibly make that first and decisive move? Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism is basic to human nature. This is our default approach to the question, but it's wrong. And no one reminds us of that better than Paul does. God has always been a gracious God throughout the Old Covenant and throughout the time of Jesus in the ministry, but no one really impresses upon us the depth of the free grace of God better than the Apostle Paul. It's all for free. It's all of grace. God's work and the power of the Holy Spirit long precedes anything that we possibly do. Oh, yes, we have to believe. And our children have to believe. And this is the plus. This is the benefit of being born in a covenant context. The benefit is you, as children, get the message of the gospel earlier than anybody else. You get it already as soon as you can listen. You get it on your mother's lap. You get it from your father's tongue. You hear the message of the gospel, and we have to believe, and parents have to believe, and we all have to believe, and we have to believe again and again and again and again. But what is faith? Is faith an act by which we can claim some credit? Is faith some kind of deed by which we say to God, now I merit this, and I must receive it? If someone would give you tomorrow a million dollars and you would reach out your hand and take that million dollars, would you go home and say, you know what, today, I, you know what, I earned a million dollars? Of course not. You'd say, this rather peculiar person, amazingly, he gave me all this money. All I did was reach out my hand. That's what faith is. Faith is reaching out the hand and saying yes and amen to God. Faith is only the means by which grace is received. How deeply we've fallen, how high we've been raised, how free it all is. All you have to do is this. Should you not say, this is amazing, because this is what I chose, death and sin and this is what I did again and again. And this is what I am left to myself. But God raised me up with Christ and is lifting me up into the glory that he had with the Father before the world began. 
As I've been working through Ephesians, I'm delighted to see time and again how the canons of Dort so delightfully capture this Pauline point of view. Article 14, chapter 3, 4 says, Faith is therefore a gift of God, not because it's merely offered by God to the free will of man, but because it's actually conferred on man, instilled and infused into him. See how much you need the eyes of your heart enlightened, and we need to pray that prayer of the Apostle Paul. It comes by God. Faith is instilled, infused into man. Nor is it a gift in the sense that God confers only the power to believe and then awaits from man's free will the consent to believe or the act of believing. It is, however, a gift in the sense that he who works both to will and to work brings about in man both the will to believe and the act of believing. God has to give us even the will to believe. Isn't that what our Lord Jesus said to Nicodemus? People don't contribute to their rebirth any more than they contribute to their first birth. Do you think you had a lot to contribute to your first birth? And ask your mom how much you contributed to that. As Christians, we are God's workmanships. We are the result of God's activity. Human beings are really not, not causative agents. They are recipients entirely of the grace of God. If the first creation was entirely the work of God before we were even there, the new creation is entirely the work of God as even though we are here. The refreshing of people and the refashioning of people who once were dead in transgressions and sins and by nature children of wrath into a spiritually alive people is entirely a work of God and His grace. We are, says Paul, His creation. And as to our works, Paul says, actually those are even products that we don't even do. They are things that God prepared ahead for us to do, to walk in. Even they are the result of the work of God and His Spirit. All we need to do is walk in them, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, the good works which God prepared in advance for us to do it. But get it? Salvation is not because of our works, but it's surely for our good works. This is why God makes you believe and why God gives you faith so that you might do things and live differently to the praise of this God. Good works are indispensable to salvation, said one man, but not as its grounds or its means, but as its consequence and its evidence. Grace is God giving himself to us. Faith is us living in relationship to God. Or as someone else said, we do nothing to gain our salvation and our life with God, but this joining to God does everything to us. This joining to God does everything to us. Amen.